0: and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Trafalino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across a little bit of land in this great nation of ours, a subset of land within the overall nation, several states, in fact, is the one, the only, the cloud man himself, Ken Nalbone. Ken, thanks for being here. Thanks
1: for having me, Rich. Really only one state, and thankfully it's only overland, unless you take some weird route over the Great
0: Lakes. Uh, but there are several states of mind that you have to go that's true get to there
1: and and driving across ohio and indiana is probably just going to induce multiple states of rage
0: (laughs) rage depression flatland it all works out uh, either way Uh, let's get it started though with a little segment we like to call news or not this is where we have you know just too much news to have substantive conversations on each but i need to check with ken if these individual items are in fact newsworthy now, nah. first up here, we have some interesting news uh, from security reachers at Checkpoint Software. They demonstrated installing ransomware on a Canon 80D DSLR. Installing the ransomware used the picture transfer protocol over Wi Fi or USB, which doesn't require any authentication. This comes with a ton of different cameras, not just Canon. The ransomware encrypted images in the camera's SD card to prevent access. CounterPoint contacted Canon back in March, and the two have come out with a patch uh, and have been working on it since May and came out with a patch uh, just a couple days ago when the story broke. The researchers said that while their exploit was specific to Canon, any camera that uses the the picture transfer protocol may be vulnerable to a similar attack, basically because it doesn't authenticate anything, can ransomware on your camera news or not nah? kind of interesting kind of scary
1: not com- particularly newsworthy unless you you have photography as a source of revenue income for most consumers you know if they forget to update the firmware on their camera which sounds like it's you know already available then they might have the prospect of losing last month's photos of their kids first day of school or something like that well that'd be sad but not life-shattering ransomware
0: Yeah, what was troubling about this was because it's over Wi-Fi, you could really set up just kind of a honeypot to automatically connect to anything uh, if people were trying to transfer their phones or something like that and essentially have a backdoor to theoretically a wider range of people, although how many people are transferring wireless pictures in any given location still uh, making you realize that you have a computing device everywhere you go. Uh, next up here, Broadcom announced it will acquire the cybersecurity company Symantec for a cool $10.7 billion in cash. This is the second major acquisition uh, to diversify Broadcom away from the check market after they acquired CA Technologies for $19 billion in 2018. Broadcom expects the deal to result in a $1 billion in cost synergies over the next 12 months, aka layoffs. The deal is expected to close before the end of 2019. We had talked about this earlier in the year. It seemed like the deal was off. Seems like uh, Symantec realized, hey, maybe we're not worth quite as much as we thought. Uh, closing on this deal, Ken, news or not? Nah?
1: I think it's news. I mean, it's a big acquisition and therefore a big deal, right? Especially since it's a chimp company buying yet another software company, which is not really expected. I'm not sure what Broadcom's vision is for their company as a whole with all these acquisitions. Hopefully their leadership is and it's not just a buying frenzy.
0: Yeah, and it seems like for now that they want to maintain this as kind of a wholly owned subsidiary, not really pushing to incorporate this, you know, making a security play on silicon like Intel tried a few years ago uh, when they acquired, was it? McAfee, or, or yes, what, whatever security firm they bought. Yeah. Um, so interesting that's more of a hands off approach, uh, other than all of the layoffs that are surely coming. Uh, next up here the voting village at the DEF CON security conference featured a $10 million prototype voting machine developed by DARPA. You may know them as creators of futuristic, semi scary things. Originally announced in March, the voting machine is an open-source platform and will be built on purpose-built hardware, although the prototype right now is just running on virtualized hardware. But this is all going to be built from the ground up, not using any consumer silicon to ensure that you don't have any like, really basic uh, hacks on documented hardware that are available right out the gate. The machine uses a touchscreen to register votes, then prints out the selections with a QR code in the corner of the ballot. These printouts are then scanned. The QR code serves as a cryptographic validity check. DARPA hopes to have a complete system to access at DEF CON 2020 with all of that kind of uh, custom-made hardware. The system will offer a code repository for researchers to test, available just on GitHub, as well as offer a small test board to look for hardware vulnerabilities. So, again, not trying to come up with some kind of proprietary solution, but saying, hey, everybody, try to break this as much as possible. This is the best way to ensure uh, voting security. Uh, Open-source voting platforms, Ken, news or not? Uh... I like DARPA. They're kind of like the branch of the Defense
1: Department that is almost trustworthy. (laughs) Um, But this is an early POC, so it's not really news yet. Maybe it develops into something in the future. It's kind of a cool idea. I'd be interested to see where it goes, but it's nothing earth-shattering yet. I mean, ARPANET became the Internet, so that was a cool project. But then there was a DARPA Grand Challenge trying to move forward autonomous vehicle creation, and that seemed to fizzle out, and now we have other self-driving car projects so it's going to be somewhere in between those two probably.
0: Yeah, and maybe the best case scenario is that what whatever they learn from this even if this doesn't something that they commercialize and sell to states or you know the federal government or something like that, if they can have documented lessons of hey, these are the way the easiest ways for voting systems to typically be exploited or something like that, maybe that's valuable to the industry overall.
1: And if nothing else we can learn from their mistakes.
0: All right. And uh, finally, here on News or Nah, uh, we have another installment in our famous series of configuration uh, mis- or misconfigurations that are actually massive privacy breaches. That sound drop was worth the wait. News research presented at DEF CON showed that exposed elastic block storage snapshots may be the new exposed S3 buckets. Ken, that's just so exciting to me. Uh, Researcher Ben Morris made a tool using Amazon's internal search and scraped publicly exposed EBS snapshots, then attached it, made a copy of the list of the contents to a volume on his own system. Doing this over the course of a month and spending just a couple hundred dollars uh, for AWS uh, uh, credits and, you know, uh, expenses, Morris was able to get VPN configuration, uh, application keys, uh, critical user and administrative credentials, source code from major tech companies, governments and healthcare organizations. Pretty much uh, all of, a lot of uh, big, important organizations kind of guilty of this practice. Amazon has since notified customers with public snapshots, letting them know to take them down if they were unintentionally made public. But will this always just be a game of misconfiguration whack-a-mole, Ken?
1: Uh, it seems like more or less. Um, and yes, this is news, by the way, since it oh, gave yes, you yeah, the opportunity to right, finally yes. use. <laughs> yes. It gave you the opportunity to use. That. So of course, this news. Any chance? Any chance to use a sad trombone is a news story. Um, there you go. So if you thought you were safe because you paid close attention to your object storage settings in your S3 buckets or whatever, think again. It's important to pay attention to the security and configuration of all your cloud resources. So the question is, is this due to negligence on the part of the account owners or bad defaults in a- Amazon? It sounds like it's the form.
0: People
1: well, not paying attention.
0: Well, and the, what Morris had kind of pointed out was that these snapshots didn't necessarily stay up for a very long time, but using that the the Amazon's own search and just constantly running it or running it at a very short interval, even if it was only up for a few minutes and someone realized the error and took it back down, he was able to grab it uh, extremely quickly. Basically what we've seen with S3 buckets, right, whenever there's any kind of uh, mm-hmm. security keys or crypto wallets, people are automatically scraping those, looking for those actively and I imagine that will be the case with the EBS uh, snapshots as well.
1: And that's kind of just the pitfall of being in the cloud is that everything is so easy to make accessible that it's very easy for the wrong people to find information, even in that Brief period of time, so it really is incumbent upon the account owners to understand these things and to be proactive and In the cases of you mentioned if somebody puts it up temporarily realizes the error and then takes it down, they might have to launch into their whole incident response plan just for that minor you know maybe not minor but short amount of time that something was public because who knows what could have happened
0: absolutely. Uh, Well, Ken, let's get into our first discussion story here, and I love a good meaty chip story, and I love a good meaty AMD chip story, and this is no exception. AMD unveiled their second-generation Epic platform called Rome. This provides a new CPU architecture based on Zen Zen 2 and built on a 7-nanometer process, offering up to 8 memory channels, 128 lanes of PCIe 4.0 I.O., and up to 64 cores per socket, and generally this will be in two-socket configurations. Instructions per clock is up 15% based on the output, Going Naples platform with double the uh, AVX2 uh, floating point performance. Uh, one of the big advantages in moving is that Rome moves away from the Naples platform, which had a non-uniform memory architecture. Essentially, within the chip, it was kind of configured, the, the way the memory was shared was like it was two separate processors, uh, and that was just because of the way they kind of, it, it was a very... I don't want to say a hack job, but it was very kind of quickly uh, mashed together for speed of development, not necessarily for efficiency of the processor. Uh, with Rome, that's been really uh, uh, refined into a central I/O hub for the CPU cores, which will allow for reduced latency between core sets and make optimized latency easier for developers. Uh, and then it will also take advantage of any optimizations they made for Naples within that CPU when then they move to the two-core or the two-socket configuration, which is kind of nice. Compared to Intel, this offers up to 50 to 100 percent higher performance while offering 40 percent lower prices based on the top top tier Intel uh, scalable Xeons with double the I/O lanes, and those I/O lanes are actually PCI four versus PCI three, which is actually then doubled, you know, more lanes and also double the speed. Does this make you a believer that AMD can be relevant long term in the data center? Ken? well, you know. I think we're no longer now impressed that AMD can come out with a new generation that for a while is better than what Intel can offer. But does, you know, no one's making uh, data center purchasing decisions based on a one-year win, right? So does does this prove that AMD is, is a viable solution long-term at the data center like this? Well, call me
1: Agent Mulder because I want to believe. <laughs> I like AMD and I like what they're doing. I'm not ready to crown them a true competitor yet. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly due to perception, right? They've been making lots of positive moves in the past couple of years with, with the advancements they've made. You know, I'm sure the hardware enthusiasts love everything that you just said. But infrastructure is a multi-year investment for most companies, right? And they want to know that the technology they're purchasing is proven. Things like performance, reliability, and value are very important. Uh, AMD basically needs a few generations of Epic under their belt to earn the trust of these enterprise companies that are going to purchase something that's going to sit in a data center for three, five, even more years. Uh, the real opportunity for AMD has been showing up in the cloud providers, which you know they've been seeing some wins with. They've been in AWS for a little while now, and both Azure and GCP recently announced that they're going to support Epic-based instances, which is very attractive for consumers for a better price-to-performance ratio. So I see that as kind of the temporary way that they kind of grasp some market share and work their way long-term into the data center. So if they keep it up uh, in terms of producing hardware that is both innovative and competitive price wise with Intel they're on that path but they're not quite there yet in my opinion
0: yeah and with consumers obviously it's an easier play because <laughs> you know you're you're buying it to play a game or run you know certain applications or whatever like that and yeah it's you know anywhere from a two to five year i guess purchasing decision for that, whereas you know enterprises are investing millions, if not tens of millions of dollars in this, and that's not something you can just fly overnight and and make that switch over even though they're all running you know the same instruction set with x eighty six um the what I think is very interesting to me is they seem to have been really keyed in that yes. At any given point, Intel is going to probably come back and beat them on instructions per clock. Someone's going to shove more cores in there, but they really seem to be hanging their hat on just putting a ton of I/O uh, into these platforms. You know, Naples on top of that was right up there. You know, was was that was their big lead, right? They could claim performance parity, I guess, with Intel, which was a big accomplishment for AMD two years ago, uh, Mm -hmm. but a huge I/O lead. And when you're looking at uh, that as being an increasingly You know, where latency is increasingly important, less so than performance in a lot of applications. I think that is an important uh, uh, point that AMD kind of identified as a way to differentiate themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, next up here at the Huawei Developer Conference. Hey, this isn't a trade war story, guys. This is (laughs) awesome. At the Huawei Developer Conference, CEO Richard Yu unveiled Harmony OS, an open source microkernel based distributed OS primarily aimed at IoT devices. Yu stated the OS was faster and safer than Android, which kind of set up a false dichotomy in some of the coverage here. It's really not an Android competitor. And that the event that Huawei can no longer access the Android ecosystem, the company can deploy Harmony OS. At any time, and by at any time, they're hoping to not have to do that in those situations. (laughs) Uh, The OS doesn't allow for root access thanks to kernel isolation. The way the microkernel is set up, you don't actually ever get uh, root access to the kernel. And it uses formal mathematical verification to spot vulnerabilities, as well as featuring a deterministic latency engine to allocate resources with real time analysis and forecasting. They're comparing this to things like uh, Google's Fuchsia OS and QNX. QNX is a real-time operating system, so I'm not sure if – like, I didn't see in the documentation that this is real-time, but they're claiming real-time-like capabilities and reliability. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, but they're claiming it's five times faster than Google's Fuchsia, which isn't even out, so that's just made-up numbers. But three times faster than QNX, which is which is uh, very established in the automotive industry. Uh, they'll, Harmony OS will first come out in smart displays. In fact, they already have the first kind of smart display announced, uh, and will still include the Linux kernel and Huawei's LiteOS kernel alongside its microkernel for the time being. With version 2.0, due out in 2020, that will uh, those two other kernels will just go away. They'll have better graphics support. And It seems like that's like the the actual release of this. Definitely not an Android killer, but can Huawei make IoT more secure with microkernels, Ken?
1: There's a two-part answer to that. One, do I think IoT can be more secure with microkernels? Yes. Do I think people trust Huawei to deliver <laughs> a more secure operating <laughs> environment for these devices? Not necessarily. The trade war you mentioned has kind of tainted the reputation, so it's going to be difficult. So folks who don't understand the architecture of the, this OS, and I'm Kind of one of those. I, I I understood most of what what they were talking about there. I understand what a microkernel is. So the people who don't understand the OS or tech in general aren't likely to buy into this. They're not going to necessarily think that Huawei's OS is the way to go because they just hear Huawei and they think bad things. So sorry, Huawei. You know, even if you have the best intentions here, you're going to be. Struggling climbing uphill against public perception on this one.
0: Well, the, the one thing I will say in terms of like being hopeful for better IoT security is being open source. Yes, I'm sure there's going to be a pay Huawei for support, right, for Harmony OS and mm-hmm. operating system for free, you know, the, every open source projects business model, right? But theoretically, this could be something that could be used by the hundreds, thousands of, you know, small scale IoT providers and come up with a more secure base. Yes, if they're not getting the latest patches and support, how valuable is that? But if we can set at least a higher floor for the currently abysmal state of like weird anonymous IoT you know, Chinese made or, or, you know, whatever, just weird IOT devices that to me makes the entire ecosystem better. I, again, that's, I don't think that's a, that's a permanent solution, but it could be a nice side effect of this, even with, you know, kind of hesitancy of anything with the name Huawei on in the U S at least.
1: Exactly. And, and of course, again, the architecture seems like a sound idea. Yeah. It, it is just a perception problem. It would have to be a fork that is completely separated from Huawei in some way that people wouldn't even, even, Realize that, or if they knew that it was distantly involved, that it's no longer part of that for it to be something that is massively adopted.
0: But for people that don't realize, you know, the the big distinction there is, you know, uh, not being able to have root access. The problem with a lot of IoT devices, if you're not familiar, is that, especially for you know, kind of these no name devices that just kind of sit on your network, either they have uh, hard coded like user credentials that you cannot change. You cannot change the password, cannot change the username, or by default, they're operating all the time in root and the password is Tor or something like or, you know, <laughs> root backwards. And that's what a lot of kind of default Linux uh, distributions use. And if you don't know to change that, or if you don't have the ability to change that, uh, it just becomes just this gaping security hole. Yes, on a small IoT device, the, the odds of exploiting that one device are, re- are pretty small. But when enough of those are on any given network... You know that that becomes a huge surface area. Yep. So Ken, I know you're a huge fan of uh, voice conferences, uh, teleconferences. uh, What am I thinking of? Webexes. Uh, But Cisco announced it's acquiring Voicera, Voice, voice Voiceia. Yes. Voice A. I'll
1: just read it as Voice Voice A first. Voice A.
0: Uh, the makers of a voice assistant called Eva that can join conference calls. Conference calls is what I was trying to say, and take notes. So the idea is it transcribes to conversations and automatically highlights what it kind of uh, uh, figures out to be important with an algorithm, as well as you know anyone on the call can have the capability to say, uh, "Eva, you know, mark that last bit, uh, you know, as a follow-on item or something like that." This will be rolled into Webex, which is just rolled out actually its own kind of uh, Alexa-based uh, assistant capabilities. I don't know if this will be a supplement to that or eventually to replace that so they're not depending on Amazon for the tech. But, Ken, do virtual assistants make conference calls worse or better?
1: Unless the tech is foolproof in transcription and other analysis, it's just going to create more work. So worse, in my opinion. Um, I, know, I think also very few people will claim that WebEx is their favorite conferencing platform. <laughs> so having a feature only on WebEx isn't likely to excite very many people. So... I don't really know who this is for. Maybe there's somebody who's gonna say, oh, just what I was looking for. I'd like to meet that person and you know talk to them and understand that because it doesn't excite me personally.
0: Well, this reminds me of like two, three years ago, there was this big excitement about all of these virtual assistants you kind of roll into email for kind of the same purpose. So instead of CCing your office manager or, or someone else on your team, To, you know, hey, put this call on, you know, uh, on my calendar or something like that. You could loop in this virtual assistant and they would automatically, you know, it would automatically be tied into your Google calendar and do that. And you're absolutely right. The problem is it wasn't foolproof. It worked 95% of the time, but then 5% of the time it would shoot back this awkward email of, you know, did not compute, please resubmit. And then the, you know, kind of the illusion uh, of this convenience of this virtual assistant is completely shattered and just becomes mm-hmm. a huge kludge for everybody. The one thing I will say is the idea of this I really like because I'm pretty sure every conference call I've ever been on, there's like two other people that don't say anything on the call but are just there to kind of either take notes or for whatever reason, you know, this they, they need to be able to hear it and it's just the only reliable way because, you know, they're, it's really there's not a lot of like instant transcription services available for conference calls at least that I know of maybe there are I just I'm not enough of a conference call nerd to know about that but if you can have that reliably be there reliably kind of highlight the action items from the call and then be able to distribute that so that you don't have so many people sitting on calls that you know strictly speaking don't need to be there other than just to to you know consume the content of it i think that could be valuable uh, down the line and, uh, you know, and be uh, help out productivity and and only have the people that really need to be on those calls beyond those calls. Basically, I don't want to be on conference calls. I don't need to be on.
1: And I can see it be kind kind of being beneficial to your point. But a word for word transcription is not going to be useful for most people. They want meeting minutes notes, uh, unless it's intelligent enough to actually generate that kind of information out of a, uh, a conference call. I, I don't know. Anybody except the conference call nerds that you said uh, uh, exist w- w- would like it. I- I- do those people exist? I'm not really
0: conference sure. Conference call power users. Nerds is pejorative. Let's let's say yeah. Conference call power users. will go with if you it. say so. Yeah. All right, and finally our last story. Uh, this just broke this morning. The uh, workplace rental startup WeWork submitted its S one filing with the SEC in a move to go public. If you're not familiar with WeWork. Uh, evidently, you don't work for a software company in the Valley, but you can go there and rent offices or desks or any kind of—you can rent whole floors, and they're all really hip and cool, and there's lots of glass and bespoke wood and uh, beer taps and stuff like that. A lot of nitro cold brew, I feel like, out work. WeWork. Uh, overall, the company showed a $1.6 billion loss— on 1.8 billion dollars in revenue in 2018, with losses growing faster in 2019. Albeit, they've already shown this year that revenue has is showing like it's going to double for the year, uh, even as losses kind of mount. Uh, the company has doubled the number of desks and members over the past year. They now have 604,000 desks and 527,000 regular members. They call them or just people that use their service. Uh, WeWork has become a mainstay of startup culture, and we've had a few companies, in fact. Uh, host us at WeWork sites for things like Tech Field Day presentations. You know, we, we've we've definitely uh, seen our fair share of WeWork facilities. Uh, but the company is seeing Uber-like losses without that Uber-like revenue. You know, there's a lot of uh, 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 you know gnashing of teeth about you know is Uber going to be able to be profitable? You know, their their losses are are still pretty substantial even as they pull in a a ton of money. WeWork is, you know, signing these long-term lease agreements with these buildings, renovating them, putting a lot of capital investment in there, with the hopes that they can pay off. Any concerns for viability here, Ken? The, the WeWork seems like it's fairly embedded now in the startup culture, but is, is the scale of this, I guess, sustainable? It
1: doesn't seem like it, because 1.6 billion worth of losses and 1.8 billion on 1.8 billion of revenue means that they spent approximately $3.4 last year, right? Total. And they're obviously not finding a business model that can make them profitable. So what's the long-term goal here? I don't see how it's workable unless they figure out how to actually turn that around and make money. It doesn't matter how much people like it. If they go bankrupt, they're going away. So what?
0: Well, I mean, and the idea is that, you know, they've been fairly aggressive in expanding to different Mm -hmm. cities and adding, you know, increasingly elaborate, you know, kind of, uh, accoutrement in a lot of their offices and that kind of stuff. The idea being, though, is once they reach a certain level of distribution, maybe they can slow off of growing the locations and they've then they've already made that investment they've already signed those leases they have those rates locked in they've spent the money on the renovation then they can recoup that with theoretically people using it as long as they can keep growing users in the markets that they exist in i mean maybe you know it seems like there is an idea of that's how they would be get profitable at some point they would need to stop aggressively expanding city to city like they have been doing for the past couple of years there's also a whole bunch of kerfuffles about how some of the uh, CEO and management are using uh, money, trying to cash out pre-IPO and that kind of stuff. I, that, to me, is, is a management issue. Yes, that may impact their viability, maybe long-term, but I'm mostly concerned about, yeah, this uh, this kind of model. I mean, that's the thing is, like, if WeWork goes away, it, then it just goes back to kind of what it was, where, you know, you're just working with smaller rental companies, yes, and, and mm-hmm. then you probably have to work on making the spaces cool yourself as opposed to, you know, kind of moving into a pre uh, prefab a cool place with a foosball table and uh, a beer keg, right?
1: And the problem with the slowing of the expansion that you're talking about, and hopefully turning this around to a profitable company, is that it doesn't grow the revenue Mm -hmm. like it needs to be, like you were talking about. They aren't anywhere near the Uber levels of revenue Mm -hmm. that they need to justify the amount of losses and spending that they're seeing. So how do they rectify that without continuing the expansion and then Continuing the losses as a result.
0: Yeah, they're they're definitely going to need to be very careful with you know how much they pump the brakes or or you know uh, make sure that happens at a rate where they yeah don't lose uh, uh, people joining the service because like you said they have more deaths that you know uh, a substantial number more deaths than members at this point and. I I don't know. I I mean, the one good thing WeWork has for them is it doesn't seem like they've burned through Goodwill quite like Uber (laughs) There
1: is that, Uh, except uh, whatever this, you know, management uh, exit thing is.
0: That to me is like, you've made private investors mad. The, The startups that are like, no one's claiming like it's unfair to startups that WeWork is, you know, necessarily expensive or something like that. So, uh, you know, maybe they'll have more goodwill and, and they'll be able to parlay that uh, into a successful IPO. Uh, risky move, though, looking at those financials. I was surprised to see that they did the S1, but uh, maybe private investors are getting edgy and they want some, uh, some more capital to expand with. But that just about bring us to the end of the Gestalt IT rundown. Ken, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? You can find my writing on gestaltit.com.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Nabon Make sure you check out techfieldday.com every once in a while for the events I'm part of. Uh, I will be in San Francisco in a couple of weeks for VMworld, Techfield Day Extra at VMworld, so be sure to check that out.
0: Very exciting. And if uh, you are into mobility at all this week, we have mobility field day going on. It's actually going on right now. Uh, I'll be going on until Friday. We have a lot of, uh, of great presenters going on. Um, so make sure you check that out at techfieldday.com. The live stream will be up there, uh, through Friday and then you can check out the full edited videos. We have our crack staff, uh, literally working on getting those videos up as I speak to you today. Uh, so those should be up by the time you see, uh, some of those should be up by the time you see this. So make sure you check that out. Uh, We'll be back next Wednesday, 12:30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT news of the week that matters to you. Uh, until next time, uh, remember everybody, for me, for Ken, for everyone here at the GitHub IT family, remember, have a super sparkly day.